Friends, we are continuing today in our series through the book of Ephesians, and we started a few weeks ago, a few months ago in chapter 1, and we're currently at the end of chapter 4. And for the past two and a half chapters or so, what we've seen the Apostle Paul emphasize quite repetitively, right, over and over again, is one particular theme. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know what this theme is. It's a theme of unity, gospel unity, right? That's what's been written. That's what Paul's been talking about. That's what Paul's been explaining why a local church should be like that. But what Paul hasn't been talking about as much is the how. Okay, he's talking about what it is. He's talking about why we should be it. He hasn't talked about the how. And that's exactly what he gets to in our passage today. What are the practical things can members of a local church actually do for and to one another in order to foster family unity, okay? And if I'm honest, ever since this part of the series, I've I've been a pastor for seven years, right? And I've counseled many of you. And I know, therefore, that for many of us, the deepest wounds in our lives were caused by family. The deepest hurts we've experienced was from our old communities and friend groups. And some of us here have experienced some of that hurt here in CCC in your current gospel family. And this is why I told the staff team two weeks ago, throughout this part of the book, I've been feeling a bit like a fake salesman's up, up here. You know, I'm up here saying, family, but you're all going, nah, family, you know? We know the wounds and the pains caused by the communities and families are represented here by every single one of you. But here's why we push on. Here's what I think is interesting. Isn't it interesting that even after all the hurt you've experienced, after all the ways your family members and your old communities and friends have failed you, for some reason, we just keep persisting to search on for this elusive version of a perfect family, either by constantly fixing the one we're currently in or by looking for better ones in the future. Whatever it is, we seek for it even now, even after you've been hurt so many times, kapok kapok, you know, which is Indonesian for you just, you keep going even though you're beat down so much. And it's like, why? why? Why keep going? Even after being hurt so many times, you, you just have to find it. Why this unsatiable longing for something so elusive? There's a quote from an old movie I like that I thought was pretty interesting. It says this. It's like we all feel homesick for a place that doesn't even exist. You know? You create a new idea of family for yourself, for your kids, for the family you start. And it's like a cycle or something. Then the movie goes on and says, but maybe that's all family really is. A group of people that miss the same imaginary place. And what the Bible would say is, yes, we do miss it, but not because it's an imaginary place. It's a real place. We've been trying to get back to that place since Genesis chapter 3. And one day, God will take us there when he completes the story. But the good news is, we can also taste a bit of it now, here 
in our local church. Big promise? Well, let's take a look at how. Let's read God's instructions through the Apostle Paul, taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 5, verse 2. This is how. This is the Word of God. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as a truth in, is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but, let, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such, is, such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. <coughs> Thus says the Lord. Family is not an imaginary place, and believe it or not, your local church has the potential to be an appetizer for it. But if you want your church to be that, then every single member in your local church, not just the elders and the pastors, not just the deacons, not just the staff, not just the community group leader and Baptist leaders, every single member must have, first, a mind that's not alienated from God, Second, a will that's resolved on wearing the new self. And third, a pure sincerity for God and others. Okay? Let's break those down. Let's go to our first point. We must have a mind that's not alienated from God. Okay, so Paul starts off his instructions here about how to become family by first explaining how the people in a Christian community must walk differently than the Gentiles do. That's verse 17. Okay, what are the Gentiles? That's just a phrase that refers to non-Christians, okay? If you want to foster true unity, you've got to walk differently than non-Christians do. And then he kind of goes on to describe non-Christians, I think in a way that at face value sounds a bit unfair, right? He's a bit harsh. Look at that, verses 17 to 19. He describes the Gentiles or the non-Christians as having futility of mind. They've been darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. They're ignorant. They're callous. They've given up to sensuality, greedy, and every practice of every kind of impurity. And it's like, man, Paul, that's, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? You know, you're making them out to sound like monsters. I actually know a lot of non-Christians who are, in fact, much more kind and forgiving 
and patient and selfless than I am or than many of the Christians that I know, which is true. I, I know many of those as well. So how do you make sense of Paul's words here? Well, what Paul's trying to say is not that non-Christians completely lack virtue whatsoever or have no sense of God at all. No, no. To really get what Paul's saying here, we actually got to go to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, okay, where he repeats the same exact phrasing to describe the non-Christians that he did in Ephesians chapter 4 just now, okay? Let me read it to you, and I think it's on the screen behind me as well, just for clarity. Tell me if you hear the similarity. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 21. He said, for although they knew God, talking about the Gentiles, non-Christians, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become, here it is, futile in their thinking, right? That's what Paul said in 4.17, Ephesians 4.17 just now, the Gentiles have futility of mind, they're futile in their thinking, and he continues in Romans chapter 1, their foolish hearts were darkened. You see that? Same with Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says they have darkened understandings. Okay, so Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4 is Paul's description of the non-Christian. But look at this. Did you notice what Paul said here in the beginning of Romans 1.21? He didn't say these people have no sense of God at all, so they become futile in their thinking and darkened in their understanding. It's not what he said. What did he say? He said, though they knew God. Well, isn't that interesting? How can they know God? Though they know God, but they did not honor him as God. That's why they become futile in their thinking and dark understanding. So if we let Paul's words in Romans 1.21 inform Paul's words in our passage today, Ephesians 4, 17 to 18, okay, following, it can't mean that he's saying non-Christians don't have any sense of the divine or any traits of virtue at all. What he's saying is that though they know God, although they have a sense of godness and virtue, yet they don't give honor to God as a source and standard for these virtues. Let me try to explain it this way. Stick with me. If you, for example, you're here today and you don't believe in the existence of God, right? You don't believe in the existence of a personal moral being that exists above, before, and beyond creation, who is the source and standard for all that is virtuous. Well, the question that you're faced with, therefore, is where do you source this source and standard for virtue from then? Where does that come from? Who decides the benchmark? Well, you might respond, I do, Tez. Look, I don't need to believe in a God to be a loving person, to be a selfless person, to be a patient human being, I can source those virtues from within myself, okay? Or you might say, my parents are. My parents, the way they raised me, the values and habits they planted in me, that's the source and standard of virtue, okay? Or you might say, my culture is, right? The Indonesian culture, Chinese culture, American culture, whatever, that's the source and standard for virtue, okay? But if that's the case, there's an issue that I want to propose you end up running into each time. Stick with me. If you say earlier, you know, I'm the source and standard for virtue, my preferences, my norms, my emotions, my common sense, do you see how that's problematic? That statement requires a very high level of self-grandeur. 
you're saying that your emotions and your common sense is the source and standard for virtue? And what if you extend that logic to everyone else? How does that work? Whose definition is right? Every person is the ultimate norm. Okay, you say, well, my family is that. My family is, you know, their family, my family values is the unquestionable standard and norm for virtue. But, you know, I have to say, to say that a group of people are the unquestionable source of standard for virtue, that is dangerously close to how cults begin. I for sure don't want my kids to view me as a source and standard for virtue. I'm way too sinful for that. We all are. Okay, if you say my culture is then, you know, the Indonesian culture, Chinese culture, American culture, that's the standard for, you know, virtue. Is that not racism? <laughs> it doesn't work. You know, anytime you don't honor God as a source and standard for virtue and replace him with something else here on earth as a source and standard for virtue, one, it breeds all kinds of dangerous implications. Two, it's utterly chaotic. Because now there's no potential for anyone to be on the same page. Like, how much forgiveness is enough forgiveness? How, how, how sacrificial should I be in this particular situation? How does love express itself in this unique scenario? How far must I take integrity with me in this specific case? Who decides? Do I decide? Does he decide? Does her family decide? Does his culture decide? Is it a meeting point of, or a secret combination of all that? Like, what is the source and standard? No one's on the same page, you see. That's why Paul says in verse 17 to 18, they've because of their alienation from God, they become futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, and they become ignorant. Not because they don't have virtue, but because they don't have a standard for virtue. No one's on the same page. And that unclarity not only breeds disunity, but some have even used it as an excuse to justify their sensuality, greediness, and impurity. Paul continues in verse 19. You see? No anchor. But you, Christian... He says in verse 20, you, that is not the way you've learned Christ. You shouldn't be confused. You have an anchor. You have a source and standard for virtue. Who is it? Jesus Christ, who is God, who's come down to us, the Bible claims. You have an anchor. You have a pinpoint. But before you go, uh, Jesus, do you realize how high of a standard that is for you, Christian? Think about it. If Jesus is your source and standard for virtue, for integrity, for love, for truthfulness, for selflessness, for patience, that is not a call to relax at all. It's actually the exact opposite. It's a call for us all to stop rolling up our sleeves and do some work, some hard work. It's a call, Paul says in verse 20, 21, to put off our old self and put on our new self, which leads us to our second point. In order for a local church community to, to feel truly one, every member must have a mind that's not alienated from God. We have to have the same source and standard, okay, or else it's chaos. Or two, and two, we have to have a will that's resolved on wearing the new self. All right, let's move on to the passage. 
Paul says, because our source and standard for virtue is Christ, his life, his character, then obviously there are tons of characteristics about our own lives that we need to take off and leave behind and replace with Jesus' characteristics. But there's no way Paul can tackle every single one of them. So he focuses here in verses 25 to 32 in our passage on four specific things for us to put off and put on. Let's call it four different adornments, okay, when you adorn yourself with something that every member of a church must be committed to doing if you really want to show the world that family is not an imaginary place, okay? Let's talk about the first one. And these, these adornments in that passage, by the way, is broken down by the word let at the beginning of each one, okay? The first adornment, it's in the middle of verse 25. Paul says, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, that's the first adornment process. Paul tells us to put on what? Truthfulness right? Speak truthfully, speak accurately about your neighbor to your neighbor. You can vent, just be mindful of how it can so easily turn into gossip, all right? And what are we supposed to put off then? Interestingly, Paul doesn't say put off untruthfulness, because that's the opposite of truthfulness, right? Untruthfulness lies. He doesn't. He says put off sinning in your anger. Now, what does that mean? Paul here is actually quoting Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, where the psalmist there says the same thing, be angry and do not sin. And it's actually in the context of self-regulation, okay? Paul's saying, the psalmist is saying, if you don't deal with your anger towards someone else, if you, if you let the sun go down on it, right, if you allow it to fester on, you know what you're doing? You're giving the devil an opportunity, he says in verse 27. To do What? What does he do? He doesn't immediately blow up the situation. No, 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 no. That's going to force you to deal with the resentment. He wants many sons to go down in your resentment. You know what he does? Verse 25. He uses that festering resentment to tempt you to ever so slightly describe the person you're angry at inaccurately, just a bit untruthfully. Think about a person you have resentment currently towards now. <laughs> and if you're honest, do you not find it unbelievably hard to paint that person purely objectively and accurately as you vent about him or her to someone else? Isn't it so hard to do? Now, none of us here would straight up lie about the person, right? Most of us would just edit a good 5 to 15% of the story so that we can still satisfy our resentment, but yet be protected from liability in the future. You know what I'm talking about? I see a lot of you smiling, because I know you know, because we all struggle with it, okay? Don't do that. You accumulate those kind of conversations over a few years in a church. You know what happens? Not family, I'll tell you that much. Put off resentment, Put off this long-lasting anger. Put on truthfulness when you speak about others. Side note, if you find that willpower alone isn't sufficient to soothe your resentment, you know a really good option. It's to talk to the person directly about it. And trust me, I hate conflict. I have exhausted many options 
that's available to me. And I will tell you now with confidence, there is no better way than honest and true, direct conversation with that person. Go do it. Put off resentment, put on truthfulness. Two, second adornment, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Put off, put off what, Paul says here? Put off selfish stealing, okay? Now, I do want to point out here that the word steal here, in the, or in the Greek, kleptas, it doesn't actually refer to the act of explicit stealing, like when you snatch someone's purse, you know, and run away. It's not that kind of theft. The kind of theft here is referring to the kind of thievery that happens in secret, that happens silently, okay? So Paul here is most likely referring to someone in, a com- in the community who's actually not in need, but yet they present themselves as being in need, fooling everyone else in the community so that everyone else will give to him or her. Paul's saying that's, that's not being needy. That's being greedy. That's called theft. Now, he's not saying that everyone who's in need is lying. Okay, look at verse 28. He says those who silently steal should labor, go get a job. Why? So that they can share with anyone who actually is in need. So there is a category of people who truly are actually in need, and if that's the case, the church should generously give to this person, as Christ did for us. But, Paul's saying, if you actually could get a job, and you're just too lazy to, and everyone else ends up carrying your weight for you, That's not neediness, that's selfishness. Take off selfishness. Work, get a job, labor. Why? So that you can put on sacrificial giving to those who are actually in need. Okay. First, take off resentment, put on truthfulness. Second, take off selfishness, put on sacrificial giving. Third adornment. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Okay, take off what? Corrupting speech. Now, what is corrupting speech? Obviously, it's speech that's unnecessarily crude or filthy, you know? But even non-crude and filthy words, Paul says here, can corrupt if they're not spoken at the appropriate moment what he said, right? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion. So for example, if someone who's married for a long time to an objectively difficult spouse, and this person is in tears in front of me after 10, 20 sessions, and this person's telling me, Tez, I've tried everything. I have tried everything everything, but it's been really, really brutal recently, and he's crying, and then I go, man up, you little softy. (laughs) Okay, you know, is that an appropriate (laughs) words at the right time? I don't think so. That's not good, but does that therefore mean I can never say those words? For example, in the other hand, if a newlywed who's been married for like two months and he's married to an objectively great spouse 
but he's just a little whiny because he's not used to giving up some of the privileges he had while he was single, and, you know, and he's just kind of, life's so hard. Then, on that occasion, I might go, hey, you know, man up. You can do, you can do hard things. I probably wouldn't say a little softy, though. That's, that's just <laughs> inappropriate at all times, okay? It seems like. But you see what I'm saying? What's the appropriate moment? Do you have that wisdom? Can you tell what's when you need to? Okay? Take off resentment. Put on truthfulness. Take off selfishness. Put on sacrificial giving. And third, we just talked about earlier, take off crude insensitivity and put on graceful speech that builds up. Okay? And build up there is referring to the whole body of Christ. Fourth, last one, last adornment, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, this one might sound similar to the first one, to the first adornment about resentment, but it's a little different. Paul here is actually not referring to the inaccurate speech and gossips that resentment might induce. He's talking about here the direct malicious words that anger might make us directly say to a person right then and there, okay? In other words, you could say verbal abuse. Now, this can take many forms, explosive words to the person, obviously, or subtle jabs marked by, masked by humor, or sarcastic comments, that's actually loaded with angry energy, take that off, Paul says. Instead, be kind. Can I just say this? Kindness, I think, is the most underrated and often mocked virtue. Stop mocking it. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. By the way, as I talk about these lack of virtues, I, I end up making eye contact with some of you. That's not personal, okay? I'm not like <laughs> directing these things I notice when I look at Evan, I'm like, oh, I'm not, okay? <laughs> that would be an inappropriate moment to, to do that. Okay, so let's summarize. You want a gospel family. You want the world to look at your local church and see that family is not just an imaginary place. One, take off resentment and be truthful when you speak about your neighbor. Take off selfishness and start giving to your neighbor. Take off crude insensitivity and speak in a way that builds your neighbor up. And lastly, take off verbal abuse and be patient towards your neighbor. All right? So if we just do all those things, we'll finally be family and the world will be convinced that a real family exists. Right? Okay, let's pray. And let's see immediate results better more. Now, we all know it's not that simple. Okay, why? Because, look, church folk, right? Us all. We generally do these things already. Kind of, don't we? I mean, we give our money away every Sunday. We tithe. Many churches have mercy ministry programs. We say nice words. We do sacrificial things. We're generally kind people. So then, if we're doing these things, why does the church still, for some reason, feel disjointed? It just feels a bit off still. 
You know, everyone's being nice, everyone's being kind, but why does there still feel like there's this gap between how clean we look on the outside and what we actually are in reality? Where's that gap come from? Well, Paul addresses this in the last section of the passage. To be truly family, every member must have a mind that's not alienated from God, a will that's resolved on wearing the new self, and lastly, a pure sincerity for God and others. Where do we see that in the passage? In chapter 5, verse 1 to the last verse there, the last two verses in your passage. So after Paul tells us all these things that we've got to do, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, do you remember what that phrase means, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God? We talked about it briefly in our call to worship earlier. It's a phrase that refers to the purity of one's inside motivation as they offer these sacrifices to God. Remember in the Old Testament, if a person kills an animal and offers it as an aroma to God, it won't be pleasing to God if they're doing it with the wrong motives. The person's offering wouldn't be received as a fragrant aroma if, the, if it's uh, done not with pure intentions, but for self-serving purposes. So what Paul is reminding the Christian here, what he's reminding all of us here at the last part of this passage, that when Jesus died for you, he said, his sacrifice was a fragrant aroma. It was a fragrant pleasing to God. Why? Because, Paul's trying to say, that Jesus there didn't only do the right actions. He also did it with pure motives. Therefore, imitate this, church. It's not enough for you to just do the right external acts. It's not enough for you to just tithe or sacrificially give or be patient or speak graciously or act kindly. You got to do it truly, holistically, fully, inside and out. Look, here's the problem. It's not that the church isn't smiling enough, but it's that those smiles are rarely real. You see, you tell me how many smiles has betrayed you in your life. You tell me how many acts of kindness have been offered to you with ulterior motives. Tell me how many people who said they forgave you end up quietly slipping out of your life. Hmm? How many times has believing in kind words end up biting you in the back? Even Jesus was killed by a kiss. The problem isn't that we're not smiling at each other enough, but it's that we're frowning on the inside. If you want your truthful speech, your sacrificial giving, your gracious speeches, your kindness and your patience and your forgiveness to actually ascend into heaven and become a pleasing aroma to God, you got to do it because you actually want to love the person you're doing it too. And look, I'll be the first to say that I struggle with this more than perhaps many people here. You think I'm nice? I'm not nice. I hate conflict. That's why you rarely see me mad. Just being honest. It's not because I'm actually that nice. It's not because I feel this deep internal commitment to love the other. 
is because I'm committed to escape the discomfort of relational tension <laughs> with everything I have. That's why I'm so nice. You think I'm patient? I'm not that patient. You know what I am? I'm a people pleaser. I want you to like me so much, I end up looking meek and patient, but really, I just can't stand you having a problem with me. But deep inside, patience is actually the last thing I feel. And love in those moments is not even in the periphery of my heart. Just being honest. See, now you're all like, does he actually like me? <laughs> you know, like, does he, has it been a lie this whole time? No, okay, like, I do love you and I do like you. But this is what this does, right? It, it creates this suspicion between each other. We just don't know. Is it real? And I promise I'm working on making my insides to align with my outsides, you know? But don't you see, this is our problem. It's not that we don't smile enough. It's that we're not really smiling. But when Jesus died on the cross, it was a fragrant offering to God. Listen, what you saw him do for you on the outside was exactly what he felt for you on the inside. You believe that? There's no gap. There's no discrepancy. You don't need to be suspicious of that. Not a single lie. He loved you. Really. Truly. So he gave himself up for you. So Paul said. Now, I'm also not saying that you can only smile at someone on the outside when you really feel like smiling on the inside, okay? Don't do that. Good luck with that, all right? Here's what I'm saying. Church, as you adorn yourselves with these things Paul's telling you to do, just beware of your heart. Beware of your motives. Have I really forgiven this person, or am I just saying it's okay to simply brush the tension away? Am I, am I giving because I really do love this person or because I can't handle the icky feeling of guilt if I don't? Am I kindly conversing with this person because I actually care about their lives or because that's just what we're supposed to do after church for like 20 minutes? Am I actually being virtuous, truly, for the sake of God and neighbor or am I, do it, am I doing it to hide what's truly in my heart? Jesus didn't die for you to cover up what was truly in his heart. That was his heart. So you, Christian, do likewise to your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, it's utterly discouraging at times to know that we have a source and standard beyond this world who is Christ. Because how in the world do we live up to that? We can't even do it externally and now you're asking us to do it internally? And I pray that, Father, as we attempt to put on these adornments in our lives, that you remind us also of the gospel, of the good news that Jesus Christ did not die for us because we're virtuous. Jesus Christ did not die for us because we're forgiving, because we're patient, because we speak accurately about everyone all the time, because our heart motivations are always pure. Jesus Christ died for us 
because he really did love us. Inside out. He didn't need us. He was worshiping and glorifying the Father just fine without us in eternity past. He wanted us for the Father's glory. Father, help us as a church adorn ourselves with these virtues. And may we, if by any stretch of your mercy and grace, may we be some kind of flavor to this world about what family is and help us show them it's not an imaginary place we keep looking for. It's here. Come. They can join through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.